Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Good Faith Idea Exchange. For today's episode, I sat down with Professor Stephen Landis from the University of Rhode Island. Now, Professor Landis has been teaching for over 50 years. That is a lot of experience. And he's, for most of that time, he specialized in communications. Uh, more recently, he is um, specialized in media. Professor Landis went to URI for undergrad. So he's been associated with the school for quite a while. I also want to take a moment and give a huge thank you to the university, uh, the University of Rhode Island, for putting me on their homepage. If you go to the university's homepage, uri.edu, you will find me on there. Yeah, I've been on there for the past week, and I might be on there for a little bit longer. But uh, if you click on my name um, right underneath my picture, uh, you'll get an article, and uh, you can read a little bit, um, some background information about about this podcast and you know how it came about. Anyway... Enjoy this interview. This is part one of my two-parter with Professor Landis. So first, Professor, could you please um, just tell me a little bit about your background? You know, um, I, I know, you know, obviously you're a professor at the University of Rhode Island. You know, how long have you been teaching at, at URI and um, how long have you studied communications and media? Yeah, well, you know, technically, I'm I'm not a a, a full professor. I, you know, I'm a part time instructor and have uh, been. Let's see, I've been at the university since. Well, I came as a freshman in 1965, and in some ways, I never left. <laughs> I've been teaching since 1971, so this is my 50th year, which was when I figured out it was very hard to <laughs> believe it was that long. Uh, my background is I grew up in uh, Providence, in South Providence. I'm a product of Providence Public Schools. I uh, graduated from Hope High School, went to, I think when I went to URI was probably the first time I ever was away from home. 30 miles, it might, it might as well have been the moon, you know, both uh, culturally and distance wise. Uh, but, you know, it changed my life as it does for so many other people. And uh, like I said, I basically haven't left. I've been teaching since 71, been studying media, probably since about, not, not media, but communications. I, I was a little late to it, probably about 60, 1969 or so. You know, I also did graduate work, my graduate work at Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. In terms of, so communication for almost 50 years. Media probably, always a little bit, but probably started concentrating that on it more uh, in about 2004 when I really, when I started teaching uh, COM 346 at URI, which is social and cultural aspects of media, which I've been teaching for about 15 years now. Gotcha. And also, also this year I've started teaching uh, COM 246, which is new media and society. Both are great. Both I really enjoy teaching and very topical. In a lot of ways, it's like trying to catch light in a bottle, you know? <laughs> Okay, interesting. It sounds like you have a lot of experience um, dealing with all of this. Well, was there um, was there a specific point that you can point to in your life that had a profound impact that maybe altered the course of your life? 
Yeah, yeah, very clearly uh, for me. Um, you know, I, I was in school during the Vietnam era and, you know, for a lot of males in, in my generation, uh, one focus was stay out of the army, stay out of the draft. And I, you know, extend your, you could get a student deferment for five years. And, you know, like many of my friends, we did that. And then about halfway through my fifth year, I got a low draft number. They changed, you know, the, the draft system. And by February of that year, I was uh, in basic training and uh, on active duty. And I think, it, it, and uh, being trained as an MP, and it wasn't so much either, you know, in general being in the army or in general, you know, my uh, MP training. I think what did it is, you know, I came out of a very lower middle class and probably upper lower class background. My dad was a cab driver. My mother was um, was a housewife. And I don't mean this is a sad story. You know, both he worked very hard. And I always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder thinking what I didn't have, you know, in life. And then once I went in the army and saw how such a wide range of people, it was very clear to me how hard my parents worked and how lucky I was, you know, that they worked that hard to provide me with a, uh, provide me with an education. And, and uh, in fact, it, ch it, ch it changed my focus and it changed my life around from worrying about what I didn't have to realizing how lucky I was to have myself you know one of the one moment and stop me if i'm being too wordy was when um you know at reception station you know you go through these medical tests and i sat down in the chair and the dentist uh you know hit me on the shoulder and said you're from the east uh you've been to a dentist and then the next kid i think was either from west virginia or you know you know somewhere in appalachia and they're counting off every tooth in his mouth he had never been to a dentist you know and that was a, you know, that was kind of a stock realization of, you know what, you have it, you've had it pretty good. Don't ruin this opportunity. And when I got out, I'd like to think I didn't, but I was lucky because I also had a, a mentor who took me under her wing. Uh, she was the chair for a while, Professor Agnes Duty, and I owe so much of what I've accomplished in life to her seeing things in me that I didn't, I was too young to see in myself. So I was lucky. Okay. Okay, interesting. Hope, that, hope that's not too much. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Honestly, you know, for me, when I joined the military, um, I guess I had a similar feeling, but um, you know, maybe just not quite to the point that that you did. But mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, I, w when you when you're there, especially when you you know when you're there at boot camp, you, you're you're encountering all different kinds of people. Oh yeah, you know, absolutely, all all different cultures, all different walks of life, and, right? Um, and, and also a lot of different perspectives and, um, you know, interacting with all these different people, it, it can definitely open you up to a lot of things that you weren't even necessarily closed off to, but just didn't even know about. You no, know? I, like I said, I thought what was going to be the worst experience in my life ended up being life changing. Right. For me. Right. Well, well, professor, um, how would you define the word media? And um, you know, how would you say this definition compares to society's understanding of that word? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, the, the word media is, is generally defined as, as uh, communicating one to many professional communicators, communi you know, communicating a, a message to uh, uh, many people. Uh, I think uh, 
technology and, and social media has changed how we view media. It's not just TV. It's not just radio. It's not just, you know, although no one reads it in, you know, in hand newspapers, it's, it's uh, media has gone from technology has changed uh, what was traditional media and, and the delivery of uh, traditional media in so many ways. So I think media is, is a, has a much broader term. And the other thing is, you know, now with today's media, you can both be a, um, a consumer and a creator at the same time, which didn't wasn't available before the technology and, and social media you know, and that started changing really in 1992 with, uh, you know, the ability of uh, web browsers, the beginning of web, web browsers as we know it, you know, and the opening up of uh, the government opening up the Internet to the general public. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, what would you say the function is of the media in 2022? I think it has a lot of functions. I think it, uh, you know, Simply, I think it, it it informs, it entertains, and it's also there to make a profit. Okay. okay. If, if I had to put it in three words, uh, that would be it. Forms, entertains, and it's profit driven. You know, in in ninety nine percent of the cases. Right. Right. Now that information isn't always necessarily uh, true, but it does inform. Right. Absolutely. I, I agree. So <clears throat> I've heard you mention uh, information versus power before. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell me a little more about this relationship? Yeah. Well, I think information is power. I don't care if, if, uh, and, and since media, you know, provides information often, you know, there's a power associated with that. And that information can be just going to school and getting an education. It can be life experiences that all gives you information, or it can be formal information imparted by, you know, a uh, media uh, source. And as I often say in class, when you look at the people who don't want you to have information, they tend to be uh, zealots, uh, religious fanatics, uh, closed authoritarian state because they just want you to toe the party line or the religious line, whatever that is. And information and, and truth from a perspective that they don't see it is, is anathema to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now also professor um, more recently, I feel like the American news media, you know, I feel like it's been criticized by more people you know, recently than, than any time I can, re I can remember, mm -hmm. um, you know, how much of that criticism would you say is legitimate and warranted? And, you know, how much of it would you say is unnecessary? Um, I think it's, it's legitimate. I think it, the, the question is the degree of the criticism. I think, you know, uh, we have uh, a free press and I use that term broadly. Okay not just print, you know, I think we have a free press, but I'm not sure it's an independent press now uh, because it's so profit driven. You know, I don't think it's I'm not sure that it's viewed the same way it was 20, you know, 40 years ago as being a, a public trust and in the public interest. Uh, you know, uh, all news organizations are expected to make money. 
And there was a time, let's say, the broadcast news, like CBS News, before the 80s, was considered a loss leader. It was, you know, it was the gold standard of broadcast news. And it was um, never expected to turn a profit, you know. Uh, that all changed. And with that, now you have news media, especially electron, you know, especially broadcast news media, uh, needing eyeballs uh, for for ratings and to turn a profit. And because of that, I think they're not independent in the way they used to be. That's uh, uh, that's why I say uh, the press is free, but it's dependent uh, on the profit motive. Uh, especially in broadcast uh, TV broadcast media in a way that it never had been before. And um, I think the concept of being part of the public interest and having public trust in mind, I think has been, has been lost. And I think in some ways that's turned news into what we now call news as entertainment, you know, more than uh, factual based, significant, important reporting. Although there is certainly some of that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I feel like, unfortunately, uh, just my opinion, but I think we have quite quite a bit more of one than the other, unfortunately. I I, I would agree. Yet at the same time, there's some people really doing some great journalism out there. You have some organizations that ask, that are for profit, but they're still supporting great journalism. You know, I mean, and obviously our founding fathers saw a role for the uh, press as as the watchdog. And I think once we lose that, we lose the ability to uh, really keep our democracy. If if I can be, you know, looking ahead, if 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 we ever lose that that constitutional right of a free press, then certainly that pretends uh, a rising autocracy and diminishing democracy, I think. Right. Well, how has the rise of cable news over the past 20 years changed, you know, changed the mass media landscape? And and what role would you say cable news plays today in how the public is informed? Yeah, I think it, it, it changed changed it dramatically into advocacy kind of uh, journalism. MSNBC is is left leaning and they know they keep their content left and they know they can get that guarantees them a certain audience, because unfortunately, most of us, we only listen to what we agree to. You know, we don't like dissonance in our life. And Fox News has has taken the other shape, you know, the other side. And uh, probably CNN is more in the middle, but I would argue a little yeah, more in the middle. Uh, than both. And and we're starting to confuse opinion journalism for fact-based journalism that we see on cable news. And I think that it has exacerbated the the landscape of of, uh, questioning facts, you know, because we, it's made us confused about what's fact and what's opinion. Right. Yeah, I would actually argue, I would actually argue that CNN is probably a a little more um, left-leaning than in the middle, but I I, yeah, actually, no, I, I, I would agree. Yeah, I, I would agree. But compared, it's compared to MSNBC. I think right. it, it's you know it's not quite that far. And I'm not making a value judgment about anything there. You know, my my important thing is it's almost an Aristotelian standard. What's important to me is the truth. 
Right. Okay. He, you know, Aristotle was very clear that to be a good speaker, you have to be, excuse me, female listeners, a good man, you know, and, and one who was a good man spoke the truth as best they could ascertain it. And I, I, I'm not sure we're in that. I'm not saying all journalists are that way, but I, I don't think the truth uh, matters the same way it should and did. Right. Well, also, uh, Professor, you know, there's social media, the advent and the rise of social media. You know, how would you say that rise of social media over the past, you know, 15 years has affected how the public gets its information? Well, I, I think that that's it's I think it's real been a real negative in terms of, uh, uh, you know, an informed uh, democracy. I think when social media started off, it was wonderful. It was a way to connect and, and uh, stay in touch with family and friends. But once it became profit driven, you know, once it's monetarized, whether it be the Internet or social media, it changes how it approaches things and what becomes important. OK, so now what's important for profit is eyeballs so you can be served ads. And what it has done, it has created um, a system of algorithms that, that just feed you more of what you listen to, what not what you listen to, what you uh, agree with. Mm-hmm. So stay engaged so you can be served an ad. Right. And it, it certainly doesn't do uh, public discourse much uh, justice and it creates rabbit holes that that uh, people go down. And I think one of the real things is you know we always blame algorithms, but algorithms you know we we, we call algorithms artificial intelligence, and I think it's a misnomer. It's machine learning. Someone creates those algorithms, and it's created by humans mm-hmm. with profit in mind. All right. And that is the end of part one of this two-parter with Professor Landis. And part two is going to be even better than this one was. We, in part two, we really get into, even more into media and its effects on society um, and its effects on culture. And we delve really deep into that. It, it's you know, this, this episode I feel was really good. And, you know, the next one's going to be even better. So please, um, please keep an ear out for part two. Aside from that, have a great day, everybody.